0: Well, if you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 13 this morning. We are continuing on in our letter, in Paul's letter to the the church in Rome, and you'll find that on page 948 if you're using the church Bible. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 8, and we're going to read down to the end of the chapter to verse 14. And Again, you'll find that on page 948, and I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of scripture open and to be reading along with me. And before we do look at this portion of scripture, let's again go to the Lord in prayer, and let's ask him to be present and to bless the preaching and the receiving of his word this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you hungry and thirsty and poor and needy. We come to buy wine and milk without money and without price. You've told us to come and to buy without money and without price, to come and to eat and let Our souls live, and so we pray, our God, that you would feed us with the good things of your word. We pray that you would open our mouths wide and fill them. We pray that you would give us uh, water from the rock. We pray that you would satisfy us this morning with your loving kindness in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would open our minds and hearts. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. We might see the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus and all that he has accomplished for us and all that he's working out in our lives. We pray, our God, that you would help us to hide your word in our hearts, that we might not sin against you. We pray that you'd have mercy on us and bless the preaching and hearing of your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We look this morning at Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 8, and there the Apostle Paul, now in that applicatory section of Romans, having laid the whole foundation of what we have in Christ and all that Jesus has accomplished for us, is continuing to apply to the Christian life. And now he says, "'O no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself.'" Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, in his sermon on this passage, Martin Luther tells the story about a gathering of many of the early church fathers, where many of the, those great theologians of the early church came together, and they were discussing what is the greatest practice in the Christian life, what is the most significant thing in the Christian life, and Luther, as he recounts this story, says that one said it was prayer, and another said it was fasting, and then St. Anthony, that great monastic figure that Augustine had been reading when he was young, stood up and he said, No, it is discernment. Discernment is the greatest and highest practice in the Christian life. And Luther, sitting back and observing this meeting of these great theologians is, is frustrated because he, he says essentially they could just open the book of Romans and they could just look at this section that we're looking at this morning and they would easily come to see that the greatest practice of the Christian life, not how you become a Christian, but the greatest practice a Christian can give himself or herself to is the practice of loving your neighbor. That's abundantly clear. Jesus taught that everywhere, that all the law was fulfilled in these two sayings, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's interesting to me that this passage comes on the heels of the Apostle Paul telling the church in Rome and the believers there that they should submit to the governing authorities and they should pay their taxes. And it comes... In, in the midst of Paul talking about the obligation to love your enemies and to bless those who persecute you. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. It's given to us to return evil with good. It comes in that section in which Paul has talked about using the spiritual gifts that he's given believers for the benefit of the whole. And it's in that section in which Paul, now walking backwards to the beginning of this section, Paul tells us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think soberly as God has given to each one a measure of faith. And it comes in that section in which Paul had introduced all the applications of the Christian life by saying that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. But there's a difficulty when we come to this text of understanding how all of this fits together. At times when you read Paul in those sections of Christian application, it seems like he's just jumping from one thing to the next with no rhyme or reason. There's no logic. There's no flow. There's no structure. What does it all mean? How does it all fit together? Well, I think this morning we're going to see that what he says there in verse 8 Oh, no one, anything is the transitional statement to which everything else is connected. Everything that's gone before about not owing taxes, but paying the taxes that you are supposed to pay is now the connection to Paul saying, oh, no one, anything except to love. And then he'll go on to talk about what a life of love looks like. And then he'll talk about the urgency, and those are the three things we're going to see this morning. First, we're going to consider the command from the Lord, the command to love. Secondly, we're going to see the definition of love. And then finally, we're going to see the urgency to live out a life of Christian love. We'll notice, as I've already highlighted, that Paul says in verse eight, "Oh, no one anything except God to love each other. Now, commentators are divided over this. They, some wonder if Paul's saying that you, it's not lawful for you to take any loans, and that means we're all in big trouble if we have a mortgage on our houses or on our cars, and, and if, if that's what they're saying, then we should take that seriously. If they're saying, don't borrow anything, I don't think that's what they're saying. I think most of the best theologians in the world would agree that what Paul's saying here is that we are not to have any unpaid debts that we are not attempting to make good on. He's not saying you're never allowed to take a loan. He's not saying don't borrow anything so as then to owe anything. He's saying don't leave unpaid debts unpaid, that it's unbecoming to Christians. And so in that little transition statement, you can see how it's connected to what went before, where Paul is saying pay your taxes, (coughs) Give to those to whom taxes are due. Taxes are owed to the government. And whether we like it or not, God has instituted government. Government has been a little little delegation of God's infinite authority into the societies in which he's placed us. And so we're to pay our taxes, we're to give. Notice what he says in verse 7. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now you can see how Paul is developing this theme of indebtedness. And the first thing that Paul's going to say is that we are indebted to love others. The point is not to make a big statement about your financial status and what you've borrowed and how quickly you're paying it back. That's not the point of verse 8. The point of verse 8 is Paul wants to get us to the fact that we owe love to our neighbor. Sinclair Ferguson says that that is a debt that never goes away and that we never want to go away and that we can never fully pay. That's a wonderful debt indeed that we are indebted to one another, that we owe love to one another. You know, I think in our day and, and we take very seriously things like private property and we should, there's an eighth commandment. If you take somebody's private property, that's stealing. So I I don't understand how hard that is, and yet I think in our day when we, we, we so talk about private property and personal rights and what is mine, we fail to see that in the Christian life what Christ has redeemed us to be is free to be servants to all. Christ has freed us to be a loving community of people that bless other people. He has redeemed us not to be selfish, Not to hold on to whatever I want to hold on to, but to see ourselves as indebted, not just to God for redemption. That's the big thing, that we're indebted to God, but that we are indebted to one another. I think to my own shame of how I see needs, and I see people who have made wrong decisions. And I think, well, they're just reaping the consequences and that's true. And the Bible says a lot about consequences. And yet I am commanded to pay the love that I owe to my neighbor in caring for my neighbor. That means whatever situation my neighbor's in, I ought to think, however I would want to be treated in that situation, in accord with Scripture, is how I ought to treat them. Um, the most loving man I've ever met. I've told you about John Skilton. Um, he was the sort of man that that love for others just sort of seeped out of his pores. There was nothing fake about it. My dad told me the story once about uh, Cornelius Van Til, who was a family friend, theologian, Reformed theologian, and best friends with John Skilton at the end of his life. And tapped my dad once, and he said, "You see that man over there?" and pointed to Dr. Skilton. He said, there's there's not one insincere bone in his body. I think that John, as I meditated on this, I meditated on that example, I think John understood the principle that he was a debtor to love his neighbors. You know, It's interesting, actually, Paul picks up on this idea of indebtedness, not in the section about paying taxes to whom taxes are due. We might think that's where he first introduces it, this idea of owing to others. But if we go all the way back to the beginning of this book, turn back to chapter one, all the way back to the beginning of chapter one, notice what Paul says in verses 13 through 15. He says to the church in Rome, I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation. Paul has already introduced this at the beginning. He said, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Paul, who's writing now in chapter 13 and saying, oh, no one anything but to love, is telling us, is telling us that was his mindset as an apostle, that because Christ had redeemed him and had mercy on him and saved him and gave him a new heart and wiped out the wicked, all the wicked actions of Saul of Tarsus and and remade him and turned him into a new creature and commissioned him and sent him out into the world to preach the gospel, Paul said, I am a debtor. He doesn't say to God, he is a debtor to God. He says, I am a debtor to all men. Greeks, barbarians, wise, foolish, rich, poor. He'll say something very similar in other letters to Scythians, barbarians, slaves, and free. He saw himself as a debtor to all men. That was his mode of operation. Imagine with me if that was our mode of operation. I, um, As I was preparing for this sermon my mind kind of switched into one of those sinful gears where I started to think about um, situations and relationships with others and started actually thinking, this is how sinful we are. Man, I really wish so-and-so would read this and and treat me with more love. (laughs) If you're doing that right now, That is the wrong reception (laughs) of what Paul is saying. I I, I really didn't. Then I caught myself. I was like, what am I doing? I'm supposed to think, what if I love them? Now, you know, if you're honest with yourself, you know that I'm not the only one that does that. (laughs) And so at the outset, we want to say, I, whoever you are, am a debtor to love all those around me. I don't think this is limited to the covenant community. I don't think it's just to believers. I think that Paul is saying to everyone, because he sums up, verse 9, he sums up how love fulfills the law, which we'll talk about in a second. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you know the story where there was the self-righteous man who came to Jesus, who said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, what you're reading, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, oh, I've done all that. And then Um, Jesus basically draws out that his neighbor, his neighbor, were all the Gentiles that he didn't love. And then he tells him the story of the Good Samaritan to show this man that he hadn't kept the law and that he needed a redeemer and that he hadn't loved his neighbor and that he had selectively put in the neighbor box all of the Jewish religious people that he wanted to like. And so I think that we are to take this and we are to say, I am a debtor. I am a debtor. I owe love. But it's not just a debt to be paid. It's a command. It's an obligation. Notice, it is a command for us to love. You know, people today will say, you can't command love. You can't tell somebody to love. Love is something that happens to you. It comes on you. I want to read to you this, which I think is, is wonderful. Sinclair Ferguson says, Paul is saying love is both a debt we owe and a command that we're to obey. That's very countercultural today. Our culture does not believe that love can be commanded. Love is spontaneous. It's how you feel. It's what you give your emotions to. But in scripture, love is what you give yourself to. And Paul is saying that it is not only a debt we owe each other. It's something that God commands us to do. Indeed, he's really saying that when he says love is the fulfillment of the law. He's not saying just love and forget about the law. He's saying all the commandments can be boiled down to this commandment. There are different ways of expressing obedience to this commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when Paul moves from telling us it's a debt that is owed, and then in verse 9, he, he cites that off-cited verse, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's telling us that God commands love. Now this is wonderful. This is wonderful. Right now we're facing a world in turmoil over something that's been going on in the world for nearly a thousand years with Islam. Um, There are two references in the Quran to the love of God. That's it. I venture you would not be able to find how many references there are to the love of God in scripture. Allah is not a God of love. He is not a God. He is an idol. The God of the scriptures is a God of love. The God of the Scriptures could have commanded us to wipe out our enemies when they didn't submit to Jesus Christ. In fact, James and John had that very spirit in them when they went into the region of Samaria, preached the gospel. They said, we don't want Jesus. They came back to Jesus. They said, Lord, should we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And Jesus said, you do not know what manner of spirit you're of. Our God commands us to be a loving people. Our God commands us to bless others. Our God commands us to do good to others. That is a good God. That is good. Those are good commands. It is is an easy and light commandment if we think about it. In our sin nature, it doesn't feel easy because of the sinfulness and weakness of our flesh It doesn't feel easy, and yet it is good and it is right and it is from a loving God who commands his people to love each other. Now, love is a debt that's owed. It's also a commandment that's commanded. And yet, as Paul begins to define love, you'll notice what he does in verse 9. He begins to tell us what love looks like because this is the big danger in our day. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, that it's hateful to call sin, sin. That it's not loving to let people live in their supposed loving relationships. That it's not loving to allow your children to live in sin with someone. That it's not loving to tell someone that something's wrong. That that's hateful and judgmental. That it is, it's, it's contrary to a spirit of love. And here's, here's the glory of the scriptures. The scriptures define for us what love looks like. And notice what Paul does. He says, the commandments. The commandments. Now he's going to give us several of the second table of the Ten Commandments, person to person in the moral law. The first four, that vertical, the last six, the horizontal. Paul's going to go to that horizontal because he's dealing with loving our neighbors. And he's going to set out those commandments for us. And he's going to tell us that here's what love looks like. You shall not commit adultery. Not committing adultery is loving. How is that loving? Because I am stealing from my wife love that is due to her if I do not show her covenant faithfulness in our relationship. I am stealing from someone else if I am sleeping with someone else's spouse. That I am coveting and I am wanting someone else's possessions or positions or lifestyle that, that is theirs and is not mine. And so it's loving not to commit adultery, and then Paul says you shall not murder. I hope I don't even need to unpack that. It is unloving to murder people. It's unloving to murder little babies in the womb. It is. And I'm probably going to start saying that more as our society says it less. It is wicked and unloving. It is murderous. It is hateful. It is self-driven. Paul goes on and he says... You shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, because we are all legalist at heart, and because that legalism manifests itself in a thousand ways in our relationships, in how heavy-handed we are with each other, with our spouses, with our children, with our friends, how quick we are to assert what we want others to do and how we want others to treat us, all of which shows we're legalist at heart. It's important to make this qualification. Paul is not saying try really hard to keep the commandments and you'll be a good Christian. In fact, Paul tells us back in Romans chapter 8 that what the law could not do in, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his son Not, hey, you try to keep the commandments real hard. God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so if you try to take up what Paul says here and you try to implement it in your life and you say, I will resolve to do better, I will resolve not to commit adultery. I will resolve not to murder. And I will, I will get better because I came here and I don't feel good about how I've done so far with all the commandments. Then you are missing the entirety of Romans. You will in fact find that you will be like a train on railroad tracks that is stagnant and motionless. All the law is, is the railroad tracks the railroad tracks of the Christian life. It doesn't put steam in the train. That's the Holy Spirit that comes from Christ, that comes from the gospel, what the law could not do. The law is powerless. And if you attempt in your own strength to be keeping the law and you're law-focused and you're thinking, law, 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 all day long, you will be spiritually empty, useless, despondent, or judgmental. Those are your choices. You'll be spiritually empty because you're not looking to Christ, You will spiritually useless because you'll either just live in failure and not want to help others grow in grace. Or you'll be judgmental because you'll just bang everybody over the head with what you think they ought to do or what the church says they ought to do or a thousand other ways that you manifest that legalism. If, on the other hand, you fall off on the side of it's just love, it's not commandments, you are going to be spiritually blind You're going to be groping for how to express this idea of love, and you're going to wonder, what in the world am I called to do? And then when you fall off into some particular sin, you'll begin justifying that sin, and then you'll begin to tell others, and this is where we're at in so much of our society, that it's loving to allow people to live in sin. It's loving to give people their their room to express their love. So those are the two ditches. I want to read again the rest of what Ferguson said that I found so helpful. He says, um, he says, here Paul's talking about that marvelous harmony between law and love. Have only law and you're headed for disaster and doom as a Christian. Place love over against law, and you actually have no idea what to do. And so in this way we find the beautiful harmony between the law of God and the love with which the grace of God fills our hearts. I love this. Here's the connector. What's the connection between the law of God that is weak through the flesh and yet is good and holy and right, the commandments are good, and and God calling us to live a life of love in the here and now? How do those things come together? What connects them? There has to be some bridge between them. It can't just be my desire to try to, because that's works righteousness, to try to live a good enough, loving enough life. That's works righteousness. And then you're not trusting in Jesus. And you throw everything Paul said in the first 11 chapters out the window. That's why this is so important. And here's what Ferguson said He said, The connection is here. It's just another way of saying what Paul said back in Romans 8, 3, and 4. Such important words for us as Christians. There are things the law can't do. It it can tell us what to do, but it can't give us the power to do it. I wish we understood this because at heart, every single one of us is a legalist, and it comes out in all kinds of different ways, personal relationships, family relationships, but the law doesn't have the power to affect what it commands because of the weakness of the flesh. No, Paul says, what the law could not do and that was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now listen to this. Here's the last, the last line. Law and love belong together because of a relationship that they have in common. I love this. Law and love belong together because of a relationship they have in common. What's that relationship? Law and love are both in-laws to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're in-laws. They are not the grace of the Lord Jesus. Your love is not the grace of Jesus. The law of God is not the grace of Jesus. They are in-laws to the grace of Jesus Christ. Law is powerless apart from Jesus Christ. Love is eyeless. It can't see what what to do apart, apart from the grace of God that fills our hearts. I love that. As Paul defines love, he says it's going to look like obedience to the Lord Jesus. Jesus said that. If you love me, keep my commandments. You will keep my commandments. Not for justification. Not for your standing before God. That's all been done in Jesus Christ. But as the fruit and the outworking of your union with Jesus. This is what James said. A man can say, I have faith, I have faith, I have faith, I have faith. But if his life doesn't manifest itself in, in loving good works wrought by the Holy Spirit in his soul. He does not have faith in Jesus. You always want to get that in proper order. Martin Lloyd-Jones very helpfully said, the only way to be saved from the terrible sin of antinomianism, doing what you want to do, is to put the doctrine of the gospel first. You've got to put the doctrine of the gospel first. You put what Jesus did first, and then you show what flows out of that. And so in the third place, and I think this is very helpful, notice what Paul does in verse 11 through 14. Paul is going to take us right back to the gospel. He's going to tell us about the urgency of doing this because Paul knows very well, as I know very well, as all ministers of the gospel know very well, and as you, I hope, know well, that people can hear things over and, over and 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 over, and their hearts are stagnant and empty and motionless. And they can know things, and they can have a head full of knowledge, and they can be spiritually asleep. It's interesting, the, um, the last five verses here that we're about to look at, you might read them, you might think, well, we've been through all the good stuff in Romans. All the good verses in chapter 3, and all the great verses in chapter 5, and I love those verses in chapter 8 that you just quoted. Those are great verses. But it's these last verses here that were instrumental in the conversion of Augustine, if you've ever read the Confessions, as he lived that that life of, of sexual immorality and rebellion. And Augustine was out in despondency. His soul was in desperation. He was weighed down with the guilt of his sin. And he heard some children crying out, take up and read, take up and read. And he felt like God wanted him to take up the scriptures. And he opened the scriptures and they fell open to Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. And Augustine read those verses. And arguably one of the three greatest theologians in the history of the church was converted by the words, cast off the works of darkness. It's time to awake out of sleep. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh. And it's these verses, it's these verses, that were almost singularly used in the ministry of Asa Hell Nettleton. I know you're like, who? I've never kn- Asa what? Asahel. Asahel Nettledon was one of the great revival preachers of the second great awakening. He was one of the greatest Calvinistic revival preachers in the vein of Jonathan Edwards and other great preachers. And it was on verse 11 that God singularly singularly used Asahel Nettledon's preaching to awaken the souls of people. Notice this. Besides this, you know the time. Here's the urgency. It's not, oh, that was nice. I heard that I owe love to my neighbor. I heard that I'm commanded to. I've heard how what love looks like. I've even gotten the definition of love down. I think I've got it. I think I'm good. And Paul says, oh no, there's another component. And listen very closely. Paul says, knowing the time that the hour has come for you to awake from sleep. Nettleton in that sermon will actually say that even the most spiritually-minded Christians have known what it is to have those times in their life where they've lapsed into spiritual laxity and carelessness, and they need to be awakened. They need to be awakened. And listen, here's how the awakening comes. Paul is going to give a series of specific commands that coincide with what he just said about what a life of Christian love looks like. But here's what he's going to say. He's going to say... The Lord Jesus is coming and he's coming quickly and salvation is nearer than when we first believed the salvation that Jesus Christ secured on the cross and that he's promised to bring with him and it could happen right this second while we're in worship. And that should be used to quicken every heart to the reality of a day of judgment a day of consummation, a day when there will be no more opportunities to awaken out of spiritual slumber. And the world tells us he's not coming, and as they did in Peter's day, they mock the idea of the coming of Christ, and Hollywood skews what that's going to look like. But the Bible says here's the reality of the second coming. The second coming ought, the thought of Christ coming again ought to quicken us to be serious and sober-minded about putting off the works of darkness and putting on the armor of light and putting on the Lord Jesus and living in union with Jesus and living out of the gospel and being serious and watchful in all that we do. It was in that first resolution of Jonathan Edwards, perhaps prematurely written resolutions. He wrote them when he was very young in his early 20s. But in, in one of the resolutions, Edwards says that he was resolved to live today as if it was his last day. He was resolved to live as if it was his last day, essentially as if Christ was coming again today. And it's interesting because our own Westminster Confession of Faith actually gives this statement, and listen very carefully. They say in the last chapter, almost the last statement of the confession, as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment— both to deter all men from their sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men. That's why we don't know when he's coming. Because if men knew when Jesus was coming, they would live as reckless and wicked a life as they could up to that moment. And don't you dare say you wouldn't do that. Because you know you would. Even if you have a heart that's been regenerated. You know how I know that? Because you don't do it every day. We don't cast off all sin and all iniquity. The very fact that Paul has to write to a congregation that has been redeemed, that are in Christ, and to say to them, awaken. The time is short. The world is passing away. So little of our life is spent hoping in the coming of Jesus. Now I've often thought it remarkable The Bible ends with those sweet words, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Right after Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. That's how the Bible ends. I'm coming shortly. Yes, I know with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. I get quickly could be 3,000 years. I get that. Thinking like that is not going to help you grow spiritually watching and hoping and waiting will. I want to read the rest of this quote. Christ will have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may ever be prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I heard a song this week by an artist I really appreciate very much, secular artist, and in the song she was pondering what what life will be like for her if she makes it to 100. That is the, the meditation of the unbeliever. A believer doesn't think like that. When a believer starts to think like that, they are reminded, you don't know what a day may bring, do not boast about tomorrow, don't say I'm going to go to such and such a city, buy and sell and trade and make a profit. But say, if the Lord wills, we will live, and we will do such and such a thing. I this last week looked up a friend, um, a friend of mine, when I was 21 years old, and he had he was a month older than me, and I went to see where he was online and typed in his name and and the place where he lived and um, And his obituary came up, and he died three weeks after I was converted in 2001. And it was a very sobering experience for me to think that could have been me, that should have been me. He probably died in the way I should have died. Um, It was very sobering. know, we go through our day, and we just do our thing, and we think about our things, and we think about our futures and our plans and our vacations and our possessions and our children— And we don't think about the coming of the Lord Jesus. And Paul says, it's time. Awaken from sleep. Salvation is nearer than when you first believe. Cast off the works of darkness. Walk as those who live in the day. Do not be conformed to this world. And the only way you can do that, the only way you can do that, is if you were in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, he brings it all back, put on the Lord Jesus There are people that come to church that love to be beat up so that they can go out and say, I've got to try harder. It's not the answer. The answer is awaken from spiritual slumber. Put on the Lord Jesus. Go back to the gospel. Go back to all that Jesus Christ is for you. Go back to what he did at the cross. Go back to the fact that his soul was made an offering for your sin. Go back Go back to the fact that you died with him. This is what Paul said in Romans 6. He said, reckon yourself to be dead in sin, not because of anything you did, but because of what Christ has done. Put off the works of darkness. Be clothed with the Lord Jesus. That's one of the greatest figures in the whole Bible. And you can see how this works. Christ's coming should help awaken us to put on Christ now and all that we had from his first coming. It's really remarkable that the whole of the Christian life is structured by the Lord Jesus, not by your desire to do better. It's structured by the Lord Jesus. Paul, Paul doesn't even talk about love without taking you to look forward to the coming of Christ and to put on Christ because of all that you have in him now. It comes from knowing him and going to him and communing with him and worshiping him in private and calling on him and, And living out of all that you have in him. What do you do when you fail? When you fail to love your neighbor, your spouse in the home. Let's just start with the obvious one. You fail to love your spouse. You get in an argument get in a fight. You don't want to serve them. You don't want to help them. You see the selfishness in your own heart. You go back to the Lord Jesus for, for forgiveness. You go back to him. You know that he shed his blood for you. You go back to him for power to grow. You go back to the cross to see how to love your neighbor. You go back to Jesus to see how to love your neighbor. You know, I, I love telling you that because I need to hear it so much. Um, if you're not in Christ, You can't do any of this. I think that's a big thing. Paul says that only those who have put on Christ can actually walk in holiness through love. Um, If you've never come to Christ, salvation's nearer than when we first believed. The Lord's coming quickly. May today be the day of salvation. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we need our hearts stirred up both to know our obligations and also to know where the power is to fulfill those obligations. And we thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that we are commanded to put you on and to live out of our union with you and to know all that you have done for us so that we might be fruitful in Running the course of your commandments, we pray that you would make us a people who love deeply, who don't think how others can love us better, but think how we can love them better. We pray that you would grant us grace, Father, that our love might be love that is defined by the scriptures and by your holiness and by your commandments. We pray that we would be zealous to love people as you have called us to love them. And we pray, our God, that you would awaken every one of us spiritually, that you would remove from us complacency, that you would remove from us spiritual laxity, and that you would make us a people who are zealous, who are watchful, who long to say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray that you would make that the joy and the desire of our souls. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.